0: hi everyone welcome to the sacred musings podcast with me phil saker it's episode 75 today it is the 16th of march 2023 and today we're looking at the 1997 hypothesis So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Yeah, the 1997 hypothesis, this isn't any particular hypothesis. This is just something that I've come up with. I've, I was thinking about it this last week, and I realised that 1997 was actually quite a significant year, and I'd like to just share my thoughts with you, and I thought it was important enough to be worth taking a bit of a break from the Aus Guinness book. Um... I will um, continue that, um, I will work my way through it, but um, you know we don't really have to look at that every week, there's no pressure, um, It's uh, but yeah, we will return to that um, probably next week. Um, but um, yeah, before we get on to that, and I'll explain what I mean, it's all a little bit mysterious, so I will explain um, what I mean. But before we get into that, let me just uh, run through a few quick um, things that I've seen this week which have been helpful, um, which I can recommend if you would like to, to look at them as well. So, the first thing is um, there was a really good interview with Joe Boot published on the uh, J. John's YouTube channel uh, called Facing the Canon. Uh, he does a series interviewing people facing the canon because um, J. John is a canon in the Church of England. That's, that's why it's, uh, it's called that. And it's called uh, The Mission of God. Uh, so, and, and it was a two part interview, and I thought it was a really good interview actually. And um, Joe Boot was talking really about um, something called cultural apologetics and saying about how Christ is relevant to the whole of life. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, have made uh, he used the illustration, which I thought was really helpful, of a bus of saying, you know, that we are Christians inhabit only the top deck but the bottom deck is sort of like the secular world. But it says, who's driving the bus? You know, and the problem is that the Christians only go where the bus takes them. And I thought that was a really you know, good and thought-provoking analogy. And it explains a lot of what we've seen over the past few years, that the church has just sort of gone along with the secular drift of our culture because they've really been in the driving seat. And if you relegate Christianity to just something that we do in private, then... You know, that's a problem that we need to do public theology, not just private. Um, So, yeah, um, that really good interview. um, I particularly appreciated the second half of it. Um, Joe Boots now back in the UK, by the way, and I think the Ezra Institute is now a a worldwide thing, not just in in Canada. So, yeah, um, do have a look at that. Um, The next thing I saw, this was actually a a very short Twitter thread by the Architects for Social Housing. And uh, you may recall, um, I think I mentioned um, this chap before, um, who's written a book about the COVID crisis from a left-wing perspective, Um, quite uh, sort of interesting. But he said um, four things which are more important than Gary Lineker's tweets or Matt Hancock's texts. And these are all things which are going through UK Parliament at the moment or being debated in Parliament. Um, the world health organization's pandemic prevention preparedness and response treaty uh, the uk government system of digital identity the bank of england's central bank digital currency and the united nations agenda 2030 all of those things are really important and i think it's you know it's well worth keeping in mind that there are more important things happening at the moment, that the COVID madness hasn't stopped. You know, it's kind of morphed into other things, but this authoritarianism and everything is, um yeah, it's really important to keep on fighting and to keep our eyes on, on, you know, things which are happening, which are going through like this. Um, so yeah, um well, that, that, I just thought that was interesting. And he provided links to all of those things. So um, that might be worth looking at and sharing. Um, when it comes to authoritarianism and so on, just something that you might be interested in. In our midweek communion service yesterday, I was preaching. We'd, we're preaching through um, Genesis at the moment. And I was preaching on Genesis chapter 11, which is on the Tower of Babel. Uh, Babel is, um, of course, a famous um, sort of... Um, account in the book of Genesis and it was famously the the account where human beings uh, their languages were confused and they separated and spread over the face of the earth um, but in the sermon I talk about you know the world economic forum uh, explicitly and I say that you know this is an example of what happens when sinful human beings get together that you know they come together to unite against God and against um, his anointed and you know, that it always ends up when people get together without God, when men get together without God, it always ends up with persecution of Christians and being anti-God. That's just how it goes. And so you might like to have a look at that, a uh, listen to that sermon. It's on the podcast, or it's also on YouTube. But, you know, the podcast is just kind of, um, it's just the audio. Um, so I'll put the link down to that below as well. And um, the final thing I was going to mention is, um, My wife uh, and I would just, um, the last few nights, have watched through the uh, Netflix documentary on the Malaysia Airlines plane, which disappeared, MH370. And Netflix have uh, released a documentary recently about MH370 and looking at what happened to it. And I found it a really fascinating thing because prior to what happened with covid I would certainly have had more trust in institutions, in companies and in governments. But what they effectively, and, and I don't want to kind of spoil it, as it were, um, for you, that they don't really give any answers. But what struck me as being the most plausible thing is that it was a cover-up by the, the Americans, basically. And it seems like the evidence for MH370 being the South Indian Ocean is so flimsy. You know, It, it rested entirely on InMarsat data and on um debris being washed up and um you know there was so there was so little conclusive evidence that it was actually mh370 that i i just don't think it's um it it just seems so unlikely to be to have been there and they never found the plane whereas there are other evidence which point it to being in the south china sea and i think particularly the um uh, the, the French journalist who was looking into this, who was um, thought that it might have been cargo, which came in, which was not x-rayed, which was brought in under escort, which was on the plane, might have been something to do with why it was, uh, you know, that the, the um, American authorities felt the need to do something about it. Whether they actually, I mean, I, I can't quite bring myself to believe that the Americans will actually shoot down a passenger airliner. But nonetheless... It does seem like, you know, that what happened was consistent with jamming. You know, they had a AWACS planes. Apparently, a senior source said that there was um, there were two AWACS planes involved and, um, and all that. So anyway, what I wanted to say about that is I just find, you know, the, the conspiracy theory actually is the most plausible looking at the evidence. And, you know, that when you've lost faith in institutions, when you don't trust them to tell the truth, when you only you know you think that they're going to be acting in their own self-interest rather than in accordance with you know values and morality, um, then I think this is eminently plausible that that could have happened, and that was back in 2014. Um, so yeah, the, um, the documentary itself is is worth a watch, I think. But there is also an, an article on Unheard I just found by Thomas Farsi, who also were, um, wrote. The Covid Consensus with Toby Green, um, which I think I might have mentioned before as well. But uh, and he's written articles I've mentioned before, Uh, but it's called Will We Ever Solve the Mystery of MH370? And um, he just says a a new Netflix documentary fails to ask the right questions. And uh, he goes through some of the other evidence as well, which the Netflix documentary doesn't include. And um, yeah, that's that's worth watching. So I'll put the link for that down below as well um so yeah there we go i've i think i've just lost all of my all of the faith that i had in institutions and in governments um you know I, I like in my sap for example could they have fabricated that data could they have made it all i mean they never actually released the calculations to the public and uh you know I, the, there was a chap on the documentary who said well it's hurtful that people think we're lying and i think well yeah of course it is but You know, when big government, as we know, big government have been involved in in, um, big tech. So government have been involved in big tech. You know, the uh, Twitter being in bed. We know this for a fact. Twitter are in bed with the US government officials taking people down, banning people, um, putting misinformation labels on things, all of that. You know, I can so believe that a company like Inmarsat, which does work for the US government, could lie. And, you know, it's yeah my faith has been completely eroded in people to tell the truth and to to do what is honorable and right maybe i was actually wrong to believe that that was the case in in the first place um but anyway let's um let's let's move past that we talk about this quite a lot um, so before we move on to the main topic then, thinking about 1997, just to say thanks so much for watching and supporting the podcast. Uh, don't forget to, if you'd like to get in touch with anything I say here, if there's anything you'd like to suggest or anything like that, then you can leave a comment on YouTube, you can leave me a message on Telegram, the link's down below if you have Telegram, the, uh, the app there on your phone, or you can email me through, uh, the email is sacredmusingspod at gmail.com so you can easily get in touch and I'd love to, to hear from you about any of your thoughts about this stuff. If you'd like to support me, there's a buy me a coffee link as well. The link is down below and I really do appreciate um, that and um, you know just all of your, your comments, all of your support. It, it means a lot. So thanks so much, everyone. Uh, let's move on to think about the main section. Okay, so the 1997 hypothesis. Now, this isn't a hypothesis which anyone else has come up with as far as I know. Um, this is something which just occurred to me the other day. Well, I think it's it's been, it's occurred to me a few months ago. I might have mentioned it. But um, anyway, I thought it was worth looking at it in a bit more detail because it, you know, I just had one of those moments the other day when I had a sort of moment of clarity when things just came to me and, um, I would just want to share this with you anyway because um, you know I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts. Um, so let me explain as I know this is a bit cryptic let me explain what I'm talking about. So really you know I've I just been wondering is there a year when things changed? you know because we know that things do sometimes they change gradually over time and there are also moments and years when things seem to change all at once. Uh, when decisive things seem to happen. And I just wondered if 1997 was one of those moments, one of those years, when a lot of things happened in one year, which changed things decisively, or which showed perhaps that things had changed decisively. It was just a revealing year, as well as a a turning point. Um, I don't know how exactly you would categorise it. But in my opinion, that 1997 was one of those years. Okay? It wasn't the year that when everything went to hell, but I think it was a, a decisive moment, a watershed moment, if you like. So let me try and explain. Three things happened in 1997 that I want to talk about. Okay, so the first thing is, in May, uh, that the Labour government were elected under Tony Blair, New Labour. Um, So, New Labour were elected. In June, the first Harry Potter book was released. To much um, kind of acclaim, I guess the the hype really grew as Harry Potter grew, as each book was released. But 1997 was the year it began. The third thing is, in August, uh, 31st of August 1997, the death of Princess Diana. Those three things all happened in uh, 1997 and i think all of those three things had a real significance and showed that things had changed or or things were going to change it, it was the beginning if you like um so yeah let me go through let me go through those one at a time the first thing is new labor now this is something which i don't think any of us saw at the time um, I mean, I I wasn't old enough to vote in the, the 1997 uh, election. So, but I do remember talking about it at school. I was sort of um, in my mid-teens when I was um, in 1997. But I remember talking about it at school, and you know, people seemed generally very optimistic um, about New Labour, and people were thinking that it was going to be a new start for the country, and you know, sweep sweep the old out in with the new. As it turns out, it wasn't quite. The, the dream that people um that people thought it was going to be looking back it was the beginning of uh, mass migration to the to the UK i um believe that I, I can't remember where i where I read this now but uh, it was the they labor did it to, you know because they wanted to rub the rights faces in it as it were they they did it because they could because they wanted to you know to, to kind of show their their victory and their triumph um, because of the landslide victory Uh, it was a decision which didn't seem to be taken with for the good of the british people or with the the consent of the british people it was just done because they could and because they had the power to do it it was the beginnings of the equalities legislation and sort of political correctness i think political correctness was probably beginning before that but certainly in terms of putting it into law I think that the the Labour government is where a lot of the damage was done. Um, ID cards. Do you remember ID cards? The way that Tony Blair and the government wanted to introduce ID cards. And I signed a petition against it, actually, and a a lot of people did. And fortunately, it failed. But nonetheless, that was the beginnings. And looking back now, again, you can see it, can't you? Um, And then there was the Iraq War, when... Uh, most of the country, it seemed to me, were against going into Iraq, or at least there was a, a majority who were against going in. But the government went in anyway because they wanted to, and they lied. You know, there was the dodgy dossier, there was Alastair Campbell, and you know that basically that it was all built on a, a fabrication. The reason for invading Iraq, and it did not have the backing of the country, and it did not have um, the, the backing of other others as well. So again, you know, looking back now, all of that is starting to make sense. It's starting to sound quite familiar, isn't it? As we're looking back, and I think you know, if you see what has happened to Tony Blair uh, over the last, over the last, you know, few years since he's he's not been prime minister anymore, but you know, being involved in sort of like the World Economic Forum and, and so on, you can see, I think that. New Labour was the moment, I think, when the technocrats, when the globalists, you know, if you like, they, they were in the ascendancy. That was the moment they, they really, I think, came into power. And I do wonder if people would really um, have voted for New Labour if they knew what they were voting for. Because I think a lot of people voted for, for Tony Blair, not really understanding what he stood for and what he represented. And perhaps, you know, perhaps we should have done. I remember the uh, the Tories ran that poster, uh, New Labour, New Danger. And I remember that poster and thinking it was maybe a little bit over the top, you know, putting sort of devil eyes on on, on Tony Blair. But actually, there was a an really interesting quote from a Claire Short, which is on the cover. I think this is, might have been from a book that she, she wrote. Let me just try and find that. Yeah, so this is on the poster and it says... One of Labour's leaders, Claire Short, says dark forces behind Tony Blair manipulate policy in a sinister way. I sometimes call them the people who live in the dark, she says about New Labour. It's a lie and it's dangerous. Well, that turned out to be prophetic, didn't it? Interesting. Um, Just at this point, just because I like C.S. Lewis, I'm just going to quote from, um, from him, from his... Uh, essay is progress possible just because I, I think it's it's sort of relevant. This is about technocracy. Again the new oligarchy must more and more base its claim to plan us on its claim to knowledge. If we are to be mothered mother must know best. This means they must increasingly rely on the advice of scientists till in the end the politicians proper become merely the scientists puppets. Technocracy is the form to which a planned society must tend. Now, I dread specialists in power because they are specialists speaking outside their special subjects. Let scientists tell us about sciences, but government involves questions about the good for man and justice and what things are worth having at what price, and on these a scientific training gives a man's opinion no added value. Let the doctor tell me I shall die unless I do so-and-so. But whether life is worth having on those terms is no more a question for him than for any other man. There we go. That was C.S. Lewis. Uh, was 1997 the moment that the technocrats really took over or, or, or began the, the, the coup, if you like? Um, I leave that. I, I leave you to judge that. So I'm going to skip over uh, Harry Potter just for a moment, because I want to come on to that last of all. And we're going to look at the death of Princess Diana. Now, like I said, I remember 1997. Some of you may be uh, too young to remember 1997, or maybe you weren't even born in, in 97, which makes me feel incredibly old. But I remember the death of Princess Diana. It was To say it was a seismic event is not an overstatement. I think it was just a a moment of, I've never seen anything like it. The reaction of people after Diana's death, it was just utterly incredible. And I couldn't understand it, even at that age, you know, my, my teens, I could not understand the reaction of people, and in fact, I think I, I chose not to watch the funeral service because I, I just thought people were making such a big thing out of it, and I'm always been a bit of a contrarian, I suppose. So I just spent, you know, spent the day with my friend. I remember when my mum and dad made me, um, you know, come down for the two minute silence, and then we, then we went back and we were just playing a game on the computer or something. But it, it, it was a, it was like mass hysteria. You know, it was like people weeping in the streets, people saying, I thought I knew her, even, you know, almost like she was, almost like Diana was some kind of messiah figure. Let me quote you um, from a blog written by someone called Thomas M. Sipos. Uh, this is from the Communist Vampires blog. And I think he's a, an author, um, a horror a sort of an um, author and a, 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 a writer. But he, um, he wrote a blog about this. And uh, let me just read you the start of what he says. Born a lady, lived a princess, died an angel. So said one of the thousands, millions of eulogies to Princess Diana written on posters, uploaded onto web pages or inscribed in registers around the world. Aside from the one in London, the British Consul here in Los Angeles provided a register for the public and I heard of a register sighting in Chicago. So, as we approach the new millennium, do we witness the consecration of a new messiah? By contrast, Elvis can only compare to John the Baptist. James Dean and Marilyn were mere prophets. Sure, Diana died before the millennium, but Christ was born before year one. Note the symmetry. New ages have another term, synchronicity. When seemingly unrelated events coincide, it must all mean something. Now, what I think is interesting about what he says there is that Diana dying was like the the new Messiah, if you like, that people sort of ascribed almost deity-like uh, powers or what have you to, to Diana. In fact, I think the blog post was called the di- the deification of Princess Diana, and I I think he was onto something. And I think that is goes a long way to explaining why people were so upset because she became almost like this messiah figure, you know the one who had been um crucified by the authorities who was rejected by the authorities who had you know been put to death by them, and you know that goes a long way to explaining all of the wailing and the the gnashing of teeth when she died, and something which happened actually something which I've always found fascinating about this is that a week after Diana died, Mother Teresa died. And there was hardly any comment about Mother Teresa's death. You know, it was just she died and and that was it. And I thought, what a contrast there that, you know, Mother Teresa, I mean, I know that there are People have criticized Mother Teresa, and I know that she wasn't, you know, all perfect and everything, but she is kind of held up by society as a model of someone who gave her life to help the sick and the poor. And um Diana, you know, she she was famous. You know, she did she did do some you know good things. But she was um you know, the, the contrasting reactions there between the two of them, I think, the way that we reacted to Diana, the way we reacted to Mother Teresa, I, I just feel like it was almost like the birth of a new religion, you know, that Christianity died out and this new religion came in, which was a kind of secular religion. And I think that that was a, a significant moment. You know, and again, the fact that they died within a week of each other or about a week a week apart, really, uh, really interesting. So the third thing that I want to talk about is Harry Potter. Now, what is Harry Potter significant? I think Harry Potter is significant because the stories that we tell our children shape their world. So if we tell stories which are grounded in the Christian faith, then the world which our children will inhabit will be a much more kind of moral and Christian world. But if the stories that we tell are uh, more kind of secular, if you like, then they, that will shape their world as well. So I think, you know, the stories that, that we tell children shape the world to come and i think that's why it's, it's harry potter is such a significant uh, moment the, the birth of harry potter as it were now i've become conc- uh, increasingly convinced that the future survival of western civilization depends on children and education and i think that's why schools are such an important battleground with this woke dogma and why it's important to fight when it comes to children especially Now, let me just um, give you my background, my experience with Harry Potter, because I didn't read Harry Potter when it came out. Uh, I think, I mean, like I said, I am a bit of a contrarian, and if everyone is telling me to read something, then I won't. and that was the case with Harry Potter. I mean, even back when I was a, a teenager, when I was a, you know, at that age, uh, it just seemed like there was such a lot of hype about it. And it, Harry Potter was just everywhere. You couldn't avoid it, and everyone was reading it. And everyone was saying, oh, Phil, you should read Harry Potter. And of course, I didn't. Um, now, I still haven't read Harry Potter, but I have seen the films now. Um, uh, a young um, friend of ours who grew up with Harry Potter um i think she loves harry potter more than life itself it seems like i mean she's so into it so she made us watch all 8 of of the films over the the past few months and we finished about a month ago um so i have seen the films at least which are uh, i think quite faithful to the books even if they don't contain the same amount of detail um but as i was watching the films i wasn't i mean i i didn't like it all that much but it was it actually made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like I just didn't really like the Harry Potter universe, the Harry Potter world, and I I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was about Harry Potter that I felt uncomfortable with. Um but then as I've been thinking about it, the the question in my mind, I think, which gets to the heart of it, is which moral world do the Harry Potter stories inhabit? Which moral universe do they inhabit? And let me just quote you a little bit from an interview. So, um, uh, this is something that someone a, a listener of the podcast thanks james um sent me um last week uh, a podcast series called the witch trials of jk rowling where someone interviews her and she talks about you know the, the transgender tweets and you know all of that but she begins the first couple of episodes are talking about the birth of harry potter and about harry potter itself and um I'm just going to quote you a little bit from the end of the second podcast episode, which talks about um, this, this subject. And just to say, by the way, that I transcribed this and I, it's not completely accurate. The gist is there, but it's not. Um, I haven't tra- sort of transcribed it verbatim. So uh, the interviewer asked the question, um, how do you tell what is good or evil? And this is J.K. Rowling's reply. That's such a deep question. And it goes to the heart of Potter, and it goes to the heart of my world view. There's a huge appeal to black and white thinking. It's the easiest place to be. So she's saying that, you know, we like to draw black and white portraits of people saying they're good, they're bad. And she was explicitly wanting to go against that and saying, you know, you need to think more deeply. You need to think more carefully about this. Um, She goes on to say... The two characters that caused the most furious debate were Dumbledore and Snape. People wanted Dumbledore to be perfect. He's deeply flawed. To me, he is an exemplar of goodness. He did wrong. He learnt. He became wise. He had to make the difficult decisions that people in the real world have to make. Now, Those of you who've read or or watched Harry Potter, um, if you haven't read or watched Harry Potter, then you know you just have to to, to sort of listen in on this. But the Dumbledore does make some um, what you might say are immoral bad decisions. Does he regret those decisions? Does he repent of them? Does he recognize that they are bad? Is there a good which they are working for? Now, this is something which I, I think I've only just come to, to to understand having you know watched through the series but it does seem to me that the characters are just such a mix of good and bad that no one is it doesn't seem like there is a, a good side to be on. You know even Hogwarts itself has many flaws and failings. And you know it, it seems to me that JK Rowling there is good and evil um but there isn't an ultimate good or an ultimate evil and people do not seem to align themselves really with the ultimate good or, or the ultimate evil. I think part of the issue may be that you know I think JK Rowling's a better storyteller than she is a writer and I think that you you know it's very plot driven rather than character-driven. Um, so again, you know, I think that that all sort of feeds into it. But it, you know, it just seems to me you can't have characters just doing things which are good and bad, a mix of them both, and then just say good is just you know summing up, um, you know, someone's action, seeing if they're on the side of the the greater good, or or what have you. You know, that morality has to go through a person, and we have to want to desire the good rather than the bad, uh, even if we we don't achieve it always. And it's not like we just all this complete mix of good and bad. It reminded me actually of what um, C.S. Lewis said about the Second World War. Uh, I think he said this in mere Christianity, but I couldn't find the quote. Uh, it's kind of like a throwaway line in the book, but he says that we um, in the Second World War, if there had been no ultimate good and evil, we may have had to fight. Hitler and the Nazis but we would not have been on the side of the good we would not have been on the the morally right side and it just struck me you know perhaps that that's a little bit like the Harry Potter universe that Harry Potter and the like they have to fight Voldemort to survive but they're not on the side of the good as it were that he's on the side of evil but they are not on the side of the good because there isn't a sort of ultimate good that they are fighting for and what I find deeply ironic about all of this is that it, I wonder if J.K. Rowling has inadvertently created amongst young people now a a world in which young people, her fans, could demonise her because of her views about transgender, because they believe that you know J.K. Rowling, by saying what she says, is is Voldemort as it were, they've demonised her as Voldemort. And I think that, you know, the one thing, the Harry Potter stories actually have created the context in which J.K. Rowling herself can be demonised as Voldemort, as evil. Um, Because, you know, there isn't an ultimate good, there isn't an ultimate evil. So, yeah, I think Harry Potter was a really significant watershed moment I think that that you know the 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 universe, the moral universe that it inhabits. Although there is good and evil, uh, I I don't think it actually teaches what is really good and what is really evil, or demonstrates that that it's it's so morally ambiguous actually in in many ways. Um, and this is what young people are growing up with now. And I think the hype is a part of that. You know that I think that the um, it. it you know, Harry Potter, it didn't kind of achieve success just by itself. It was almost like devoured and proclaimed as a new religion, you know, or, or with a kind of fervour, which goes along with that. There's so another interesting thing about Harry Potter, you know, the marketing machine kind of really ploughed into it. And, you know, um, it, it became just something... You know, another thing which really struck me actually, as I was watching the film, was yeah, it's an it's an all right story, but why is it so as big as it is? It's not that good. So, you know, it's it's another example I think of something being pushed beyond. For what reason? Uh, perhaps it's the message that it's giving out. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was that was my my thought about Harry Potter. By the way, I do apologise if there are any Harry Potter fans listening. I'm not trying to say it's the source of all evil in the world, but I, I do feel quite uncomfortable with the message that it's it's given out. And um, I I would certainly um, there's it's not that there's no good in there, but I would certainly think you know we need to be making sure that children are getting better uh, education in what is right and wrong in morality. Certainly, the Narnia books. Are so much better, you know. Of course, C.S. Lewis is wonderful, you know, at actually doing that. And um, I, I would say they are far more uh, important for children to be reading. So the final thing, um, just as I finish on this, which are, um, as I was looking for 1997, something which I, I just noticed is that the film Titanic was released in 1997. Uh, interestingly, Titanic, one of those films that was massively Promoted and people. I mean, some people went to see it like ten times or something crazy like that. You know, they just loved uh, this film. Interesting that it's about uh, you know a disaster, about the you know the the disaster of the uh, the Titanic sinking. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, maybe that's a metaphor for Western civilization. You know that uh, 1997 was the year that our civilization got. Uh, got punctured by by a, um, a an iceberg, you know, and that we we we've been going down ever since. And uh, yeah, I just thought that's maybe quite a good metaphor to end on, you know. Was was 1997 the year that we got hit, and the year that things started to change and we started to really sink? Um, of course, you know, things have been going bad way before that, and we've looked at many of those things. You know, C.S. Lewis was writing in the 1950s. But I think 1997 was quite a watershed moment and uh, maybe that was a turning point. So anyway, let me know what your thoughts are. Maybe there are other things that happened in that year too, which were significant. Um, And uh, it'd be interesting to see if, you know, that there was a, um, uh, if we can make a bit of a case about this. Um, You know, I think this does happen sometimes, you know, sometimes there is a kind of turning point year. So let me know, uh, let me know what you think let's finish the podcast with a reflection from the bible as i think we need to we need to do that having just uh, heard all of this so let's finish now with a reflection and i thought today we could have psalm 58 which is um I, i just happened to read this psalm the other day but it's one of those Psalms which is just dealing with questions of justice and injustice, particularly looking at uh, rulers and, and sort of kings and, and so on, the rulers of, of men. So, this is Psalm 58. Let me read it out first of all. Do you, rulers, indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skilful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are revenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Okay so this again I think this psalm really speaks for itself but let me just offer a one or two quick thoughts but just you know saying it addresses the rulers to start with do you rulers and um you know do you judge people justly do you uh, speak justly do you do what is right just and fair and i think you know again that is what that is what god requires of rulers that you know, God does require them to act with justice and with righteousness, and He cares when they do not. You know, He cares when they oppress people. He cares when they, uh, when they have people under their thumb, rather than doing what He wants. And they, and it says in your heart you devise injustice, and your hands meet out violence. And um, you know, I was thinking about what's happened with COVID, the way that, you know, that they. As the lockdowns files demonstrate, they just did not care what they were doing to people. All they cared about was uh, looking great by by saving people from COVID. Um, they didn't actually care about the harm that they were doing. And you know, although it wasn't actually meeting out violence in a a, a sort of um, in the in the way that some rulers do. Nonetheless, it was doing harm for the sake of their own egos, really, I think. And um, it said that, you know, that the wicked go astray. They're spreading lies. Interesting again. Um, Their venom is like the venom of a snake uh, that will not uh, heed the tune of the enchanter. They don't do what God wants them. They go their own way. It says break the teeth in their mouths. You know, make sure that they can't hurt anyone. That's what it's saying. Make sure that they can't hurt anyone. So let them vanish, you know, like even a slug that melts away. You know, just, just to vanish away from sight. I kind of wish that our current crop of politicians would melt away like slugs in a sense, you know, that the ones who are just in hock to this progressive agenda, this new religion, would just disappear. And that's kind of what the what the psalm is saying, you know, that the those who do harm... Those who do not do what is righteous will, will melt away. And, and the, the final few verses say, Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, the wicked will be swept away. I'm not sure whether this is um, thorns flare up very quickly and produce heat, but then disappear quite quickly. I'm, I'm not quite sure if that's what it's saying there, but it quickly is the message, you know, that they will quickly disappear. And people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. That, you know, when people can see the injustice, they will call out uh, to God and God will bring about righteousness and will bring about what is what is right. So there is always hope. And I think even at such a time as this, when it seems like unrighteousness and injustice and we just have politicians and not just politicians but as we were thinking about at the beginning you know people in business people around up and down the country who who are concerned only about their own interests who do not speak the truth who are only interested in getting ahead politically or doing favors to governments and and so on you know that that at the end of the day all of that will be exposed and god will be shown to be a righteous judge and people will say Surely there is a God who judges the earth, because I think if God does not let injustice uh, go, if if God does not punish injustice, then people will think they can just get away with it forever, and and they really can't. And so, um, yeah, there is there is hope. There is hope, obviously, in the eternal destiny of people. Um, obviously, righteousness will prevail in the end. But I think even now, even in this this world. Uh, I think we can still be hopeful and pray that in uh, that justice and righteousness would prevail, and that those who are perpetrating what is wrong would um, would be would melt away. You know that God would change their hearts, that God would remove them, whatever it may be, um, and that righteousness would prevail, and people will see that it prevails. So let's uh, let's take a moment to pray for that now. And all of the things that we've been uh, mentioning over the, the last uh, few minutes. So, Heavenly Father, we do commit ourselves uh, to you and our world to you. And we do recognise, Lord, the injustice in the world at the moment. The, it seems there is injustice at every point, And there are uh, things to worry about. There are uh, governments are oppressing and uh, looking to further their own interests rather than do what is right and what is good for the people. And we pray, Lord, that those who are seeking to do what is wrong, uh, you would turn their hearts. We pray that you would take them away from, from influence. And we pray, Lord, that your righteousness and justice would prevail in the end. And we pray that you would help us to keep seeking you and seeking your justice and trusting in you, knowing that these things will come about and these things will happen. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, just thinking about the changes that were introduced in our society um, way back. We just pray, Lord, for uh, things to, to change again, that there will be another year when things decisively change for the better, when your word and your wisdom are what people seek. And especially, Lord, we pray for our children and young people, that we might be able to to teach them about what it means to, grow up in the the fear of the Lord uh, knowing you and walking in the right ways Um, we just pray Lord that you would give us wisdom as we do uh, all of those especially teaching our children and we ask this all in Jesus' name amen well uh, thanks so much everyone just a a reminder that all the links are down below in the description that um, you can uh, let me if you want to feedback if you want to uh, say anything or you know um, Uh, recommend anything to me you can leave a comment underneath on YouTube you can uh, telegram me link is down below you can email me through sacredmusingspod.gmail.com there's a buy me a coffee link if you'd like to support me and uh, if you're on YouTube don't forget the thumbs up as well as that does help with the old algorithm. Oh, yeah, and on the, on the audio podcast, you can leave a rating and a review. Uh, there's definitely, you can definitely do that in Apple Podcasts. Um, you might be able to do that in Google Podcasts as well, then whatever your provider is, if you can do so. Thanks so much, everyone. I look forward to seeing you again soon. I think we'll be back on AusGuinness next week, probably, unless something else comes up. But yeah, in the meantime, God bless.